your first discussion question tonight, and this one is kind of a brief one. Uh, what pops into your head when you hear the word theologian? All right, when you hear the word theologian, first image or first word or whatever that begins to pop in your head, go now in your discussion groups. Okay, give me uh, some of your answers. What's just kind of shout out, first thing pops in your head when you hear the word theologian? Old men. Old men, okay. <laughs> Very good. Okay, what else? Monks with like just the top part of their head shape. Okay, monks with like the weird reverse chili bowl thing. Okay, yep. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, very good. Man, deep right there. Okay. John Calvin. John Calvin. Okay, anybody with the Calvin thing think beard? I always think beard when I think theologian. There you go. Yes, beard. Maybe a pipe. Theologian feels like it goes a pipe there. Uh, anything else? Alex Sheets. Yes, don't we? Don't we all? All right. Uh, well, welcome to our summer series. What we're teaching this summer is what we're calling Crash Course Theology. And uh, that is definitely kind of a different speed than what we usually do at the table, which is to walk through a book of the Bible and we, we teach um, exegetically walking kind of verse by verse through a text, what we're doing this summer is going topic by topic through some major theological themes, calling it crash course because really we're, we're, not, going to, uh, we're not going to get super heavy into things, but we want to be able to give you guys a, a taste of some of these things. The goal is this, that we would basically introduce you to some key theological ideas and to show you, we want to show you each week why this theological concept, why this doctrine matters for your life, and then hopefully we, we hope to kind of build a hunger in you to want to know more, to want to study these things more, and, and to give you kind of a bigger picture of God and His Word and His world. That's our goal to do this each week. Uh, we're going to start every night by kind of our, our, our topic will be basically a question. And so every night I think we'll kind of start a little bit with that. The question for tonight is, why am I a theologian? And I don't mean why is Drew. I mean, why are you a theologian? Uh, why is it that we were, we're going to start with this concept from this place that all of you are theologians? And the answer is why. Uh, most people would probably answer that question if they would ever think about it at all with, um, I'm not and why would that even matter? Or maybe why would I even want to be? Might be the question or, or kind of the way a lot of people would answer those things. That theology is something for old men uh, with beards, uh, for, uh, for professors and preachers. And the latter is probably debated. Maybe not for preachers even. Uh, it's more for like academic types uh, to kind of sit and study in rooms with uh, just lots of books, floor to ceiling. And not that it's a bad thing. I think most people would say theology is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just an irrelevant thing. Uh, and, and everybody's got their thing. And so if that's your thing, if you like to think deep, if you like to study and do those things, that's great. Um, just like it might be great for someone who really gets into Greek mythology and they really like to study those things. But the truth is that's probably not going to have a whole lot to do with your life. And so if it's a fun hobby, cool, but maybe not something to really get yourself into a lot. Even for Christians, actually, theology has been something that has uh, had a bit of a history where a number of Christians have, have almost held it at, uh, at arm's length. 
that, that theology is not just irrelevant, but in some ways a lot of Christians have believed that it, it actually gets in the way of what Christianity is really all about, which is having like a relationship with God. And so when we clutter it up and, and make it just a, a matter of the intellect, when we make something like God's Word academic, it becomes cold or dry or, or those kinds of things. And so there are a number of people who see theology as almost, uh, almost something that can get in the way. It can, it can build up pride in a person. It can, they can know all these facts about God, but they don't actually know God. And there may be some legitimacy to that. Uh, there's, there's, there's at least a reason that people have thought like that, because if a person is not careful, it can lead to... Uh, cold, calculated facts. It can lead to, we were just walking through 1 Corinthians, those of you who were with us this last year, and one of the things that Paul attacks the Corinthians for is that they get really prideful about their knowledge, the things that they know. And he uses this phrase at one, at one point, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, and so just getting a bunch of knowledge, I, I used to have a professor at Ozark who used to say, get all the knowledge that you can keep sanctified. Um, and the idea is we ought to want to grow and get a lot of stuff, but there is, there is a kind of knowledge that actually works against my holiness. There's a kind of knowledge that actually just works me towards pride and I get more into gathering facts than I get into actually knowing Jesus. Um, or maybe, maybe you're not anti that, maybe you don't think it's relevant, maybe you think it's good and I'm glad there are people who study theology and teach those kinds of things or into it. That's just not me. Uh, that's just, I, I've never been a reader. I don't, I don't read books for fun, right? I don't, I'm not much of like a student. I don't think deep about things. And so theology's great for a lot of people. And I'm glad there are people who are doing it. I just don't know if that's my thing, if that's what I'm really cut out for. Uh, tonight, I want to make the case two, for two things. One is that you are a theologian, that you, uh, theology is for you. And, and not just that, but that your theology is relevant and important, and in fact, it is an essential part of who you are. Uh, the things that you believe, your theology really is critical to who you are. But before we get into that, some terms, and you've got them on your sheet there, just a few, every night we're going to give you just a few key terms that, you, that are helpful for you to know as we look at particular topics. The first is this uh, theology you have there. Uh, the basic definition, I'll give you like the really basic, basic definition, and then I'll give you another guy's, and I'll give you mine, kind of the, what we'll be working from here. But basic definition is just, uh, is just the study of God, right? Theos is the, the Greek word for God. Uh, ology comes from logos, which is the Greek word for word or logic or thinking. And so it's this idea of the study of or the thinking about God. Uh, there's this 20th century theologian by the name of A.H. Strong, and he used this definition, the science of God and of relations between God and the universe. So the science of God, that's not a phrase you hear very often, uh, but when we say science, we, we don't mean confined to the natural world. By science, he means that it is an actual uh, subject that, that, can, that is a definite object of study. There's something you can look at and that there's an actual method for studying that. It's not just kind of me coming up with ideas. There's an actual method you can use and that there's an objective thing that you're studying. It's not just within myself, but there are actual, uh, there are actual 
evidence and things that we can look at and objectively study together to do those things. Here's the definition we're going to use uh, for tonight and for this summer. Theology is thinking about God and his relationship with the universe. I use thinking about because rather than just saying the study of God, even though we will be studying, but what I believe is that actually anytime you have thoughts about God, it's not just a classroom exercise. Anytime you have thoughts about him, that is theology. Uh, anytime you are thinking about him, that is your theology. And I say, and his relationship with the universe, because we're not only going to be studying God and his character and his attributes and his actions, that's actually, there's a, a technical term for that with, if all you do is talk about God himself and his character, that's called theology proper. And so that's simply the study of God himself. But theology at large is God and how God affects the universe and how God works in this world. And so in theology, we'll study these other things. Uh, uh, each week we'll study something like soteriology, which is the study of salvation. How are we saved? We'll study things like ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Um, who is the church? What is the church and what is it meant to do? We'll study things like anthropology. Uh, what is humanity? What are we made for? Uh, what is our problem? What is our solution? Those kinds of things. All of those are actually uh, outworkings of theology because the answer to all of those are connected to what we believe about God. And so thinking about God and his relationship with the universe, that is what we mean by theology. You've got two other definitions on there, biblical and systematic theology. Uh, there are a lot of actual different categories of theology. You can do historical theology, which is to study what the church has taught on a specific doctrine throughout history. You can do creedal theology, which is to study a specific denomination and their kind of beliefs. Uh, you can do apologetic or philosophical theology, but the two kind of key ones and the ones that we'll be dealing with the most here uh, is biblical and systematic. Biblical theology is theology restricted to the text. Theology that is simply seeking to open up this book and read through and discover what this text is saying. It is seeking, for example, to go back to this last semester, it is seeking to understand what 1 Corinthians 15 is teaching us about the resurrection. And so to do that, we're going to dive into this text. We're going to look at the historical background. We're going to look at the original language that it was written in. We're going to look at the context and all those things. But we're staying right here in this text to get a grasp on that theology. Or we might expand ourselves and go, what is, what is Paul's teach about the resurrection throughout 1 Corinthians? Or what is Paul's theology of the resurrection kind of throughout the New Testament? A Pauline theology of resurrection. But we're staying kind of attached to the text and to kind of a specific place, a book or a, an author as we talk about those things. Basically, biblical theology is what we generally do at the table most Thursday nights. Uh, especially that first half where we just walk verse by verse through the text. When we're doing that, that is biblical theology. Systematic theology is theology that explores all the Bible's teaching on a specific topic. So instead of just seeking to understand um, like what 1 Corinthians 15 is teaching us about the resurrection, uh, it, systematic theology would try to understand and then summarize 
all of the Bible's teaching on the resurrection, looking at all these texts. Uh, one illustration I've heard is systematic theology uh, is like if, you, if we had a bunch of buckets up here and we labeled them like one that would say salvation and one that would say resurrection and one that would say uh, church and one that would say sin. And then you went through your Bible with like a pair of scissors and every time there's a text or a chapter on resurrection, you would cut that out and you would put that in the resurrection bucket. And every time there's something on sin, you would cut that out and you would put that in the sin bucket until you've gathered up all the texts on that topic. And then you kind of explore that and see how it all comes together to paint one picture of that topic. That is systematic theology. And that's what we're going to be doing this summer is systematic theology, taking these sections of scripture and seeing this is what the Bible says about this. As a matter of fact, anytime you say this phrase, the Bible says you're doing systematic theology. So if I say something like, the Bible says Jesus is fully God and fully man, that's not technically biblical theology because there is no text that has those words in there. Jesus is fully God and fully man. What I'm doing when I'm saying that is I'm actually grabbing all these verses from different places, some that really highlight the divinity of Jesus, that he is God, one with the Father and was with him in the beginning, and then other texts that highlight his humanity, that he was fully man and he lived a human life and suffered, and I'm systematizing, I'm putting these together in the bucket that says Jesus, I'm putting all the verses down there, and now I'm saying the Bible says, and this is true, the Bible says Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's just that what I'm doing is systematic theology. I'm, I'm pushing all the Bible's teachings together on Jesus to tell you that rather than look at a specific verse. So anytime you say the Bible says uh, all human beings are created by God, that's systematic theology. The Bible says God is triune. Three persons in one God. That's systematic theology. Um, a few texts that I just want us to look at tonight about this idea and what it means, why we believe we should be doing theology, why we should be studying them. Uh, the first is Deuteronomy 29, 29. If you've got your Bible, go there or you can open it up on phone or uh, hear us read along. Deuteronomy is basically a sermon that Moses is preaching to the Israelites as he's led them through the wilderness and they're about to go in the promised land. He kind of wants to remind them of all that God has done for them and prepare them for their time. And at one point in this passage, he talks about them if, if they walk away from God, that judgment will come and this. And he has this little verse that's very fascinating. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Alexia, you want to read that real loud for us? The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. Okay. Moses says to them, he's saying, God has given you all these commands and these laws. He's revealed all these things. And he says, now listen, there are hidden things. There are things about God that he has not chosen to reveal to us that we cannot fully know. And we will never fully know this side of eternity. In fact, there are some things about God that are so big and so vast that even in heaven, we won't fully grasp those things. We're going to spend eternity getting to discover more and more things about Him, but we may never fully know. There are some things beyond our grasp. And yet, there are a number of things that God has chosen to reveal to us. And when Moses is speaking this to the Israelites, he's speaking to this to the only people on planet earth who have heard these things. Because the rest of the world, there is no other nation at this time that God has revealed himself to. And he says, you have this incredible privilege 
of knowing these things that God wants you to know about Him. But with that privilege comes a responsibility that you will seek to know them and that you will seek to live in line with those truths, that you will seek to pursue God and know who He is as He's revealed Himself. And that's the same for us, that we have actually even way more revealed to us than the people of Israel ever had. Um, God has shown us so many things about Himself, and that is an incredible privilege. It's what we were made for, and it's also responsibility to actually seek these things out so that we can know Him and that we can line ourselves up with Him. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38. This is when a group of uh, experts in the law and religious leaders are, are testing Jesus and they're having these conversations with Him. Someone comes up to ask Him this question. Stanton, do you have it? Uh, yeah. Okay, read, uh, read out loud, real loud. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38. Uh, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test Him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. There you go. The most important command, Jesus says, Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now, we don't have to try and divide those up specifically and go, What does it mean to love Him with your soul? And what does it mean to love Him with your heart? And what does it mean? The, the thing that Jesus is getting at is every part of me belongs to Him. And I want to love Him with every part of me. And that includes my intellect. Uh, and when I choose to just kind of be lazy, it doesn't matter, I don't, this is, that's kind of beyond me, I don't need to think about those things. No, I've got the opportunity to actually know and love Him more, and I'm called to do those things. And so, uh, not all of us are going to have the same level of curiosity about theological things. And that's okay. And not, of us are gonna, not all of us are going to have the same level of grasp of those things. And that's okay. We're not expecting everyone to want to major in biblical studies or in New Testament theology or those kinds of things. That really is, all of us are going to be at different areas. But all of us are called to pursue a deeper knowledge of the Lord, to try to know Him more. And, and I believe that's, that's something that actually brings us a lot of joy when we have that. Let me show you one more text. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Okay, I'll read this one. It says, uh, let me get to it. There it is. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, all caps there means it's his name. So that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is Yahweh's declaration. Uh, so you do see a little bit of a tempering here where, where Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah says, don't, let, don't boast in how much you know. Don't get caught up in your ability and your strength. And the point is never to just amass knowledge. Um, 
but there is a point in knowing him. So a person might look at this and go, yeah, but it says they should boast about knowing me. It's not about knowing facts about God. It's not about knowing doctrines about God. It's about knowing God himself. That is what the Christian life is about. That's what we should be after is having a relationship with him and knowing him, not just gathering up a bunch of information about him. And I would say that a person who says this is half right, that it is never only about gathering facts about God. It's never only about uh, being an expert on God like someone might be an expert on a work of art. To, to, to be able to describe God like someone describes a painting and they can go into you know, all the technique and the brush strokes and how that all works and how the artist used shading and lighting and color and all that stuff. That's not the idea, is that I just know a bunch of things about God like I might know about a painting in an impersonal way. No, no, I want to know Him. But I would argue that I cannot know Him if I do not know things about Him. If, if I were to stand up here and tell you about how much I love my wife and how close Amy and I are and how deeply connected we are, 16 years in August, we'll have been married for 16 years. And so, man, there is no one else that I am more closely connected to and that I love more than Amy. And you're going, oh, that's awesome, man. Tell me about her. And I'm like, uh, like what? Like, what do you want to know? You know, oh, I don't know. What, what is she interested in? Uh, I don't really... I never really paid attention to that kind of stuff very much. Uh, but, you know, I mean, she's, she's awesome, and I love her. And, okay, what's she like? <sighs> uh, like, is she introverted? Is she extroverted? You know, I don't really get caught in the details of her personality, you know? Um, our, our relationship goes deeper than just knowing stuff about each other, right? You know, if I were to describe that, okay, what's her hair color? Ooh, you really got, actually, I'm colorblind, so that one I'd have an excuse on. <laughs> Okay? But if you ask me, like, how tall she is, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe like 6'3", or 6... Um, at some point, you would start to wonder um, how well I actually know her. Because if I don't know anything about her, and I just go, no, 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 ours is just about a relationship. Yeah, but a relationship at some point involves knowing things about the other person. And you would wonder if I even know her very well, or if I began to describe things about her that were not true, like that she's 6'3". Um, then you would start to go, you're actually talking about someone else. I don't know who you're talking about, but it's not your wife, and you better not let her know that you're talking like this, right? Um, because So it matters, actually, that I know things about her, and it matters that I know correct things about her. If I want to actually know her, the same is true with God. Yes, the point is to know him, but I ought to know things about him as a way of knowing him. Those things go together. Um, there is, uh, actually, let me kind of jump to this. It's one of the things, actually, I should also say, in Jeremiah 9, notice what he actually says when God says, let the person who boasts boast that they know me. Now, he doesn't stop there. Let them know that I am Yahweh. Unlike, I'm not Baal. I'm not, I'm not any of the other gods or goddesses that you might worship. I am Yahweh. And then he says this, that I am the God of uh, righteousness and faithful love and justice. So he says, I want you to know me, but I want you to know what kind of God I am. I want you to know what I'm about. 
my character and who I am. So those things go together. We are called through the scripture to know him and to think about him and to think rightly about him. But it's also important to see this. Um, We're not just called to be theologians. As I've been saying to you, we already are. Uh, You already are a theologian. If you have ever asked any sort of the ultimate questions in life, questions like, what is my purpose? Questions like, uh, what happens after we die? Uh, What is the difference between right and wrong? Or what is the right thing to do here or the wrong thing to do in this situation? If you have ever asked any sort of question like that, you are doing theology in that moment. Those are theological questions. They are affected by what we believe about God. Actually, you're doing theology, you're putting theology into practice um, when you do a lot of things. Anytime you pray, anytime you seek to interpret this book, anytime you attempt to deal with sin in your life, you're doing theology. Your theology is being put into practice in that moment. Anytime you vote or don't vote, There's theology at work in that decision. When you make plans for your future, your theology is being put into practice in that moment. Theology is uh, affecting all kinds of us. So the question is not, am I a theologian? The question is, what kind of theologian am I going to be? And specifically, where is my theology going to come from? Where am I think, where's my thinking about God going to come from? Uh, in Paul's letters, he often, the Apostle Paul, when he writes these letters to his uh, audiences, he often includes these prayers for them in the letters. He tells them what he's praying for them. So if you go to Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1, Ephesians 3, and Philippians 1, you'll see these prayers that Paul prays. And probably top of the list... Probably what he prays for more than anything else is that they would know stuff. That they would know things about God. That he prays this, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. I pray that you would know, he says in Ephesians 3, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He prays in Ephesians 1, I pray that you would be filled with the wisdom of God so that you would know his will. He prays also that they would know what, uh, how they can please him. So he prays over and over again. And you would expect him to pray things like that they would be more holy or that they would be filled with power or that they would grow in Christ. And and he does mention some of those things, but for Paul, when they know these things, when they know these things about God, when they know what he wants, when they know what he's like, when they know his great love for them, that will lead to a changed life. That will lead to growth in their lives. And so he believes those things come together. It's very, very important. What a person truly believes about God will have a profound impact on the way they live their life. That's why there's this famous quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into a person's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about them. Because that thing will affect everything else. The command from Scripture is not just to think about God, but to think rightly. Okay, quick pause for discussion, and then we're going to get into thinking rightly and and kind of how we go about that. Here's what I want you to discuss. Actually, you have it written down at the bottom of your page, discussion questions. Discussion question number one. I just want you to do the first one. We said just a minute ago that we are doing theology. Our theology is being put into practice or it is playing out when we do things like pray or when we try to deal with sin in our lives or when we vote or don't vote. Um, So answer this question how is that true? How does our theology play out in those instances there? So take, take five minutes as a group and talk, okay, 
when we pray, how is our theology at work? How does that affect the way we pray? Talk about that and then go, okay, when we, when we make plans for our future, how does theology affect that? Okay, talk about that now. Hey, let me hear real quick, just, just a little bit. Someone talk to me about uh, when we attempt to deal with sin in our lives. How, like, how does a person's theology work, themselves at, work itself out when they are attempting to deal with sin in their lives? Sweet, all right, Josh. Um, so, um, if you focus too much on, like, the grace aspect of God and that, like, you don't have to, like, follow, like, um, the way he wants you to live, then you may just uh, live for yourself still and then uh, not consider what he wants you to do with, the, with your life. So you'll just be like, he's, you know, my sin's covered up, so yes. I'm still doing what I want. And then on the other aspect, if you focus too much on the judgment with no grace, then you will always, like, live in fear of, like, in what I'm doing. Okay. Like, following God, like, completely and fully. Yes. Not, like, realizing His grace. That's good. That's really good. Okay, so as we deal with sin, what a person believes about God and, and where he emphasizes certain aspects of Him, that's going to affect that. Anybody want to add to that? Anybody, anything else you'd say on that? So what you believe about sin and man also makes you aware of what you're actually capable of dealing okay. with. Okay, yeah. Which is apart from Christ, you can't deal with your own sin and uproot it without the grace of God. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Uh, I know. I think um, it's our very knowledge of God and who He is, who He's made us to be, that gives meaning to sin or gives meaning to the act okay. of trying to not sin. Yeah. Because without, without that knowledge of God, without knowing who He is, who He made us to be, um, how He meant for the world to be, there's no reason to not sin. Yes. Okay, that's good. Uh, also, here's, here's a question to even kind of, when you find yourself in sin, one of the key questions you need to ask yourself is, what kind of God is he? Is he the kind of God that I can actually go to, to help me with my sin, or is he the kind of God that I've got to have my sin act together before I can go to him? Uh, those, kinds of, those kinds of questions are really big. Uh, is he a God who, is he a God who depends, or who doesn't depend, but has left it primarily to me? to do this and he's going to say pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it together is he a God who actively works or is he a God who does it all for me and I don't have to like those are those are big questions that we have to ask actually one of the resources that I kind of put at the bottom each week we'll have some resources look at that one on the bottom uh, this is uh, a little podcast called Ask Pastor John you can also find this on YouTube these are like little eight minute episodes uh, one uh, episode that you can go listen to that's really interesting it's called Fighting Porn Addiction with Grudem's Systematic Theology uh, one of the more famous theology books that was put out in the last 30, 40 years was Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And so uh, Piper talks about the importance of theology in fighting against porn addiction and the importance of it in fighting against any kind of sin. So it's worth eight minutes of your time uh, to go listen to that. Uh, someone just throw for a, what about when we pray? Uh, how does our theology pr- play out when we pray? Firstly, what to pray for. Okay, a yeah. skewed perspective of you know, the things we should be focusing on, but also even how we are praying to this people. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what does he want? What kind of things should we bring to him? How do we come to him? That's good. Okay. Anybody else? I think also thinking through like what kind, what kind of God am I praying to? Because there's 
some that have this idea that God is like a genie in a bottle. Yes. Where anything I pray, like, he'll grant my request, or more of the prosperity side of it. Yes. If, as long as I do these things well, and if I ask these things along with my works, then he will grant me my request, and if not, then, you know, a lot of other things. But just kind of thinking, like, what kind of God am I praying to? Yeah. Like, who is this God that I'm praying to? Which will determine, again, like, what, what yes that's huge that's huge uh we don't i probably should have started with this one because this is probably a bigger one for a lot of you guys is when we make plans for the future uh that's your theology determines a lot about that about um does he care what major i'm doing does that matter does he have a specific person for me that i'm supposed to find and marry or does that matter? Does he have a certain kind of person? Does, what, so uh, how in control of things is he? And how much does he have his hands off a little bit? And lets us, those kinds of things are big for us when we make plans for the future. Um, I want to talk right now for a second. Uh, I want to spend kind of the, the rest of our time, the next 15 minutes or whatever, talking uh, about the idea of where our theology comes from, how we form beliefs. Uh, Probably, like, obviously, the, the most obvious answer to that question, where does our theology come from, is the Bible. Uh, but it's not quite that simple. Because the truth is, our knowledge of any topic comes from a bunch of different sources. Any knowledge we have on anything comes from a number of different places, a number of different avenues to us. And this is true in theology. When we are forming beliefs about God, there are a lot of different things that actually uh, form our beliefs about God. So you have like you have scripture. Okay, that is primary up there. Okay. Well, what are some other things though that uh, inform our theology, our beliefs about God? Church leadership. Okay. Church. Okay, I'm going to put I'm going to use this word for this cuz we're going to use this a little bit. Um, uh, but tradition and what that means is basically the things passed on to us. And so in this category would be like parents. In this category would be teachers. Uh, in this category would be Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Okay, Anything that is kind of from an authority figure passed on to us kind of fits in that tradition. And so the church. Give me another thing. What's another thing that informs our, our theology? The universe. Okay, what? Okay, universe. Okay, the universe or creation we call this uh, general revelation. By the way, don't read anything into the fact that I'm capitalizing everything but Scripture. That feels backwards, okay? I don't know why I did it. I usually write in all caps or in cursive, and then I started doing this. It threw me all off. So we call this general revelation. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 through 20, that there, the invisible attributes of God can be clearly seen through what he has created so that people are without excuse because you can actually see things by looking around at you. You can know that God exists, and you can know some things about him, that he's not a God of chaos but of order and those kinds of things and of beauty by looking at creation around us. General revelation is kind of the term for that. You had your name, or sorry, you had your hand back up. Uh, mine was very similar, just like our perception. Okay, okay, our perception of what, what we're seeing around us. Actually, I'm going to put, yeah, you say, say this. Right. Okay, there you go. I was actually about to use that for yours a little bit because those are similar, similar but experience. Ask a question. Don't answer it. Just think about it. Should we speak in tongues today? Should we prophesy today? I'm just going to tell you that 
80% of your theology on that is probably based on experience more than it is. Like a lot of it is based on did you grow up in a church that did that or not. And, uh, and, and for many people, that kind of question is based on experience. Their theology is built on that more than it is on even scripture, on those kinds of things. So uh, that's, that's a big one. Uh, anything else you can think of that would fit in that, fit in this category of different uh, types One more big one. Actually, there's maybe I might have more in there. Reason. Like my own ability to kind of reason through things, to use logic, to use those kinds of things, to, to determine things. Uh, you could do this here, and this, this is actually the broader category for the top one. So we distinguish between general revelation, which is like the natural things that we can see and reveal around us, and special revelation, which is God speaking directly. Now, Scripture is part of this, but if you believe, this is again, this comes back to this, if you believe that like prophecy is still something that should happen today, then that is a thing that God can be revealing through special revelation, through speaking through those things. So that's another category of it. Um, do we have, we're going to go for it. We're going to try this. All right. Uh, I need three volunteers real quick and you're not going to have to do anything but stand up here. So I'm not going to embarrass you. Okay. Amy, Ashton. Okay. Yeah. Let's bring on up here. Woo! There we go. Yeah. You can just uh, clap it real quick. So um, there is this, there's this guy named Michael Patton. And as he's trying to explain this, he's created this tool to help us understand a little bit how this works. This is important, by the way. Um, sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into a quick little uh, thing. I called you up just a tad too early. Just hang tight, okay? Um, this is important, actually, for us to understand that there are other sources and to know where they come from or, or where we are getting our theology from so that we can ask this question, am I getting it from the right places? Uh, it's good for me to know, first of all, where am I getting it from? Are those places the right places? Or, not necessarily right or wrong, but how much authority or weight should I give to those things? Uh, otherwise, you end up with what's called folk theology. And folk theology is, is, is theology just like folk medicine, medicine that doesn't actually have backing behind it. It's just something that's kind of practiced in a particular culture. It's not like scientifically proven or researched or based in anything. That's probably the best way to say it. Folk medicine is not based in anything. Folk theology is not so much either. Um, so there are a number of beliefs that people have that is probably more folk theology, like guardian angels, not actually in Scripture. Um, and so this is something that has been passed on from time to time. Uh, all sin is equal in God's eyes. Folk theology. That's, that's not actually something founded. What we actually find is someone said that to me one time, a parent said that to me, or a teacher said that to me, uh, or, or that's kind of by my experience or by my reason I kind of came to, to believe and see that. That makes sense, actually. Since all of it is punished by God, it's probably all equal in His eyes, but there's no text that actually teaches that to us. Um, and so we, we end up with these things that we believe that aren't necessarily true. Uh, in other selves. And it's good that, that we will be angels after we die is folk theology, a common belief that we'll, all, we'll have halos and wings and all that stuff. That's, that's not actually true. So it's good for us to know these things. I'm going to try to do this really quick. 
Here's how the Western civilization basically, which is connected deeply with Christianity and church history. It's hard to talk about Western civilization in the last 2,000 years without talking about church history. They're, they're tied together. This is how they kind of um, determined what is true about God and about life for the last 2,000 years. In the first period, we call it the pre-modern period, what people did, and I'm going to have people move to the front or to the back based on what was most important at the time. What people did for the first several hundred, probably the first more than 1,000 years actually, um, is the, the church moved tradition up a little bit and moved scripture up a little bit, and then reason was to the back. Sorry, Ashton. Um, and so, what primarily, our primary means of determining what was true about God and about life, uh, we knew that Christians would say, this is most important, this is the primary thing, so then why is actually this equal, or maybe you could even argue a little bit ahead of Scripture? Why would this have been higher up early on? Okay, two big things. First of all, most people couldn't read. So actually, the only way for me to know what this says is to go to the minister or the priest or the bishop who can read and can tell me. And so I'm trusting tradition to actually do this. Other thing is actually early, early on, most places, most churches didn't even have all of the Bible. They had a book here or a book there. I'd have Matthew and I'd find out that, that the, the church over in Perkins, they've got a copy of Ephesians. So maybe I could go see if we could borrow that for a little bit. I, I'll trade them 1 Corinthians for a little bit. Like literally we didn't, they were scrolls and not every church had all of those. And so we were much more dependent on tradition. And then something began to happen early on where most of the major heresies about who Jesus was and what he was like sprung up in those first, uh, in like the 400s, 500s, 300s actually is where it really started was the first major one about is Jesus fully equal with God or is he like kind of created by God and a little bit less than God? That was the first major heresy that kind of sprung up. And how did people come up with that heresy? How did people begin to believe that God, that Jesus wasn't fully equal, that he was actually a created being? Here's how. By reading the Bible and by misinterpreting it. And since they did not understand it properly, what happens is the church has to come together and they had this thing called the Council of Nicaea where the church leaders get together and they discuss this idea and this topic and they come to a conclusion and they go, no, 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 he is not just similar to God, he is one in nature with, he is equal with God. And now Christians are able to look to what tradition has told us to help us understand what the scriptures are saying. And there was a series of church councils, and so at that time, I'm going to have you step up a little bit more, tradition moves up front and center. And it really, for a very long time, this is the primary way we knew what we knew about God was by asking the church and looking to what the church had taught us for years and years and years. But then something really big happens in the 1400s. Does anybody know? The printing press is invented in the 1400s. And this means a couple of things. First of all, it means that literacy begins to go up as more and more people, because books can be mass produced and they can go out and so people can get their hands on more information. Also, the Bible can be mass produced and people can hold the Bible in their hands for themselves now. And then uh, a short time after that, in the 1500s, what big thing took place? 
the Reformation took place, where Martin Luther says, we've been listening to tradition, we've been listening to the church, and it's done a lot of really good things for us, but actually what we're discovering is that they've begun to add a bunch of things to our theology that is nowhere found in Scripture. Martin Luther was a monk, and he was a priest, so he had the Bible. He could read it even if most of the people in the church couldn't. And as he's reading Romans and what it says about grace and how we're saved by grace through faith, he begins to go, wait a second, the stuff that the church is teaching is not in line with the scripture. And so he and a number of others start what is called the Reformation. We began to push back against church as the primary thing. Now, what the church said is, as Luther said, we need to start moving scripture to the front. This is the main, one of the big ideas, sola scriptura. The scripture alone has the final say in Christianity. And, And what the Catholic church says is, this is going to be a problem, Martin. Listen, if everyone just starts reading the Bible for themselves and interpreting it for it, you're going to have a hundred different kinds of churches. You're going to have people believing all kinds of different things. Were they right? Yes. yes, they were right. Was it worth it? I think so. Uh, Luther says, no, they need to read it. And so the scripture gets put in the hands of the people and they begin to read it and read it. And then tradition takes a step back. And then as we progress more and more and, and reason begins to move up because of the printing press and people are learning more and more, what we begin to see is some of our scientific discoveries are pushing against some of the things that the church is teaching us. Galileo is telling us that the earth revolves around the sun and the church is fighting that as a heresy and saying, no, the sun revolves around the earth, which is at the center of the universe. And so we start to look at the wrong things that the church has taught us and we start to look at the way that it is running counter to the very basic things that we're seeing in the world and we start to say we're done with you and so we kind of move church off the we move tradition off the stage thank you amy you can go sit down thanks for playing um but then as the enlightenment comes we begin to make more and more scientific discoveries and we begin to understand the laws of nature and we begin to see that that there are actual laws that govern a lot of things that are happening. It's not just some like miraculous thing that the sun rises in the sky, it's the rotation of the earth, and there's actual gravity that's holding us down. And so what people begin to do is as they look at these laws of nature, they assume that because the laws of nature are there, that means there's no divine force behind the laws of nature. And they begin to read about things like uh, the, the Red Sea parting, They begin to read about things uh, like a man raising from the dead, and that just doesn't seem to really fit with what we've been learning, actually, in our recent years. And so Scripture begins to take a step back. And this becomes our primary driver. And what humanity began to believe, Western civilization, is actually by our knowledge and by our understanding of science and philosophy, we are going to create a perfect society. And it seems actually like this and its old school way of looking at things is actually hindering that and getting in the way. And so eventually there came a place where many people began to just push this off the stage as well. And this became the primary driver. And there was this belief as we moved into the the 20th century, into the 1900s, that through this we were going to be able to create a utopian society that was going to make everything beautiful and perfect. If we just followed knowledge to its greatest end, we would get to the perfect world. Some Several big things happened in the 1900s that really shook that. What would be some of those things? Okay, the world wars. And we learned that our knowledge was not making us better people and not making this world better. Actually, our knowledge of science, we were actually using to destroy one another. 
another big thing actually happened before the World Wars that was like, um, it was catastrophic, not as, on that large a scale, but it was very representative of, re, of man's knowledge not being able to do everything it wanted. Anybody know? The Titanic. Um, was supposed to be this colossal ship, and it was kind of this monument to what man could accomplish. And on its maiden voyage, it sinks. And it's kind of like this, wait a second, I thought we were able to like create whatever we wanted, and it would do all these great things. And so what we began to discover is actually our own reason is failing us. And so that actually moves off the stage. And what happens actually, and this is kind of the state that we live in today, is we have one by one dismissed the sources of truth and push them off the stage, and it has led to a place where many people do not know where to go for truth. Actually, if I could, I should have written another one. Actually, probably the main thing that stands on the stage of truth today, because around the 60s, the 1960s, this other thing started rising up, which is the idea of self-expression being the most important thing. Me being me. And me living who I am began to grow in popularity more and more and more that I should live who I am. And so the main thing that stands on the stage of truth today, I would say, is me. And it's not so much a question of what is true about the world or about God. It is what aligns up with me and what lets me kind of live the fullest life in and of myself. And so this is kind of a look at how history has pushed these things. So the question for us is, with an empty stage, what should our stage of truth look like now? How should we build this back into a way that helps us understand what God is truly like? It matters for us to know the right things. It matters for us to seek the right things about Him. So here's my question for you um, to, to discuss in there. It's that second question. If you were to build your own stage of truth, if you were to kind of draw it up on, you can draw it up on a page, or if you were just at a number of these, however you want to do it. Um, and, and some of these can tie, they can be on equal footing, some of these can be worse. How would you draw, actually two questions. What do you think is the ideal stage of truth for learning about God and the world? And if you were being honest, what is probably your stage of truth? What is the way you probably learn most of your stuff about God and the world? So uh, take a minute, actually I'm going to give you... Uh, a minute in silence to kind of write that out or number that out on your sheet, and then I'll give you a few minutes to discuss that together. Let's talk for a second, just a few more minutes, and we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, I wanna, I'd love to hear if anybody's kind of brave enough to go, hey, if I'm honest, this is probably what mine looks like. Uh, just so you know, none of these are actually bad, right? I don't, I don't think, I think all of these can be gifts from God for us for determining things. And so none of them are bad. It's just a matter of which one should get the most weight, which one has the most authority in my life when I'm trying to figure those things out. Uh, so uh, how many, someone in your group, uh, did you land on kind of a stage of truth, what you feel like this would be kind of the ideal for how we should do that? Anybody as a group kind of feel like they put that together? Nobody. Okay. Anybody... Uh, Anybody, anybody themselves go, this is how I think, this is how I think is the best, would be the best way to do it if it was me. Austin. Frank, how I think the best way, if I had to choose one of them, would probably be special revelation. Okay, yeah, that you would put that up front. Okay, yeah, special revelation. Okay, scripture and possibly other forms of God revealing himself. Okay, okay, what would you stick behind that? 
special revelation and problem for the church. Okay, for church and tradition. Okay, uh, what next? Or would you, is there, yeah, would you add other things to that? At that point, from the general revelation, okay. then reason, then experience. Okay, anybody, anybody add to that, take from that, those kinds of things? Okay, Trey. Okay. I feel, um, yeah, I feel a lot of times I go to the Bible first, but then there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't cover. Okay. So then I try to cover it with reason, and then if reason doesn't help, I try to cover it with tradition. Okay. And then if tradition doesn't help, special revelations, and then general revelations, and then my personal experience. Okay. Okay. Go. Um, someone want to give me the? I don't know what the ideal is, but if I'm honest, this is probably how I go about it. How would you? How would you describe? By the way, what I'm drawing here, this is Patton's kind of view of some of these things. And down, this is like if this is the top view of a stage, this is most important. And then on back. So um, this is kind of would be probably the Catholic view today, scripture and tradition together. Although I would argue that practically in the Catholic tradition, tra- that tradition itself actually moves closer to the top. Because the best way for you to know what the scripture actually says is to ask the church is to look at what the Pope has declared to be true about this. And so, in that sense, tradition kind of gets the final say in them. This is what the Reformers were going for when they started theirs, um, is that Scripture takes the lead with reason and tradition and then kind of general revelation behind that. Um, this is kind of what, what we became, modernity. What we described those three phases was actually the pre-modern, modern and postmodern phase. And this is today what some people would call kind of postmodernity. Um, actually, on his thing, it's just nothing up there. Um, but I would argue specifically in the last probably 15, 20 years that it has really moved to a, to a me is kind of that. Uh, anybody, anybody want to throw kind of, hey, this is, if I'm honest, this is kind of what mine is, whether it's the best or not, I don't know. This is probably what I do. Spiritual and say that like my first one is scripture, but like in reality, when I look at the way that I'm thinking and when I yeah. am reading my Bible or doing like personal study, it's oh these people have taught me these things. Yeah. I have been like trained up in this way, and their thought process behind the essential thing of, for example, someone's salvation and yes, when it comes to that of I'm surrounded by the majority of people or the more outspoken people have a specific one. And so I think, oh, okay, that's got to be it. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. But why does it make sense to me? It's because these people I respect and admire yes. are like having this conversation. Yes. So I would say like in reality, like church and I want to say church, but like church leadership has been kind of like yeah. what's shaped yes. by theology. And then I would say like scripture. Yes. Which, by the way, is that good or bad, what she just described, her reality? Okay, okay, you'd say good, you'd say depends, okay, anybody else, any other answers on that? Actually, it's probably, I mean, like I said, it depends, I would say by and large good, especially early on, how many, anybody in here come to Christ without anyone talking to you about him. You just picked up a Bible and read it and then became a Christian. Okay, for all of you, a lot of your Christianity is based on something, on tradition. Like, that's how you first came to faith. And so that is an okay thing to continue to, like, lean. I would advise that. I'm always, I was just telling somebody this week, 
Um, I'm always a little bit skeptical of the, the Bible teachers that get up and say things kind of like, uh, forget everything you thought you knew about this text. Like it's completely different than you've always been told. And I kind of, here's the new real way to discover that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's got to be wrong. I'm just always a little bit nervous. Okay, so the Holy Spirit revealed something to you that no other Christians have ever seen for the last 2,000 years. Um, I'm always a little bit leery about it, right? And, and so, like, there's something that's really, really valuable to this. But, and I think this is true of Alexia. I think if Alexia were to study and go, okay, there's someone, I really respect what Jim Johnson is saying, and he is by and large the person I follow. But if, I, if Alexia were to look at the scriptures and become convinced that what the scriptures were saying was running contrary to Jim, I think she would go, I'm standing with the scriptures, though. I really want to trust how Jim teaches, but if I'm convinced that the scriptures are speaking against what he is saying, then I want, I'm going to side with the scriptures. That's my ultimate authority. But practically, it's not a bad thing to lean into church authority. In fact, that the Bible describes that as a really good thing, to let those who are further along in your faith help you grow in your faith. So that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. It's just we always let, we always let scripture win. We always let scripture win in those things. Okay, um, this is fun. I hope this is fun for you to kind of think about and talk about. Um, if, you got, if you want to talk some more or got questions, let's do that. We'll talk. Um, we've, got, we've got some time to hang out so we can talk over Uno or over whatever else. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and then, and then we're not done. We will pull out the snacks and games and we'll hang out for a little bit. All right. Uh, dear God, thank you for... Uh, I'm just really grateful for uh, your word and the chance to think about you. And I know in my own life, this is not true enough, but I know that in my own life that the more I've got to, to discover new things about you, um, that it, is, it has warmed my heart for you. And it has helped me to love you more and worship you better. And that is what I want for myself and for everyone in this room, that this summer we would know you more and that would increase our our view of you and that would our, increase our worship of you and it would increase our obedience to you and our love for you and all of those things. And so I ask that for us, that as we begin to study these things, uh, that you would fill us with a knowledge of you that helps us love you and please you more. I'm going to ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll get, we'll get snacks out here in just a second. Yeah.